Welcome to Fresh Start Church Online. Our mission is to help people find a fresh start through Jesus Christ. Please let us know if we can pray for you or help you in any way. Now here's Pastor Bruce with this week's message. We are in uh, week three of our series, How to Get Through What You're Going Through. Uh, Two weeks ago, we started by kind of laying a foundation for how to help someone uh, who's going through a crisis, uh, how to make it through a crisis that we might be going through, and how to prepare uh, spiritually for uh, the future, for crises that are going to come. Last week, we looked at the story of uh, Naomi. And I used to have a, a real close friend, a young lady in a previous church called Naomi. I mean, Noemi. So if you heard me last week or again today already, I'm not mispronouncing uh, Naomi's name. I'm remembering our friend Noemi, and I just get them switched uh, constantly. But last week we looked at Naomi, and we we saw that you know she had good reason uh, to feel abandoned. I mean, she went through famine. Her family moved out of their country. Uh, They moved into a pagan country. Then she lost her husband. She lost her kids. Uh, Just terrible, terrible time. And here's how she responded. She said, the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. The Almighty has made life very bitter for me. The Lord has brought me home empty. The Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. She allowed her circumstances to make her bitter. Now, now what we learned from Naomi last week was that she still didn't lose her faith. She still spoke blessings upon her uh, daughter-in-law's lives. And as soon as she got back to uh, Bethlehem and things started going well, she gave God credit. And so we learned that that even though she thought God was mad at her, God was punishing her, that, that God was causing all these things uh, that it happened in her life, that, that despite all that, she still didn't turn away from God. She still didn't lose her faith in God. And, and so this morning, I, I want us to jump into that story. We're going to look at uh, Ruth, one of Naomi's two daughter-in-laws. And, and we're going to see uh, from Ruth's example how she made it through what she was going through. And there's two things specifically that Ruth did. And I told our uh, Young people here this morning, there's no, typically there's a crossword puzzle, there's no puzzle this morning uh, related to the sermon, but if you tell me two things afterwards, two things, regardless of your age, two things that Ruth did that made her better instead of bitter, then you get candy at the end, just like if you'd done the, uh, the puzzle. So we're going to see uh, from Ruth's example what she did uh, after going through a crisis, what she did to become better as a result instead of becoming bitter. And so we're going to jump in to uh, Ruth chapter 1, uh, verse 14. If you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at Ruth 1, 2, 3, 4, uh, just kind of diving into several different sections there. Uh, but Ruth 1, starting in verse 14, uh, Naomi's with her two daughter-in-laws. They're about to part ways. As Naomi heads back to Jerusalem, she's heard that uh, in Bethlehem, there's, there's food again. Things are good, so she's going back. And so it says in verse 14, And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. 
Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Now you should do the same. Verse 16, but Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people. Now, we spent so much time last week seeing the depth of tragedy that Naomi had had gone through. But Ruth had gone through tragedy, too. She lost her husband. Young bride marries this guy. And, you know, he came from a good family. All the kind of things you'd want for your daughter. uh, And she lost her husband. So she's lost a significant, significant relationship, the closest relationship in her life. So she's going through tragedy of her own. She's going through sorrow. She's going through all the grieving that we go through. Uh, But all of a sudden, when Naomi's leaving to go back to Naomi's hometown, Ruth, instead of going back to her town with her family and staying in, in Moab, instead says, no, don't ask me to leave. Wherever you go, I'll go. Wherever you live, I'll live. Your people will be my people. And so Ruth pledged her loyalty to Naomi. And this is just a huge, huge lesson for us. Because, you know, when we're going through a crisis, whether it's your personal pain uh, or whether you're, you know, someone close to you, you've lost them or they're going through pain, uh, whatever type of crisis it is that you're going through, what do we typically do? When we're in crisis, all of our focus is on ourselves, isn't it? We just, all we can think about is what am I going to do? I feel this way. This has happened to me. And that's that's understandable. All of our focus is on ourselves. And when that happens, we don't get better. Because we, we focus on what we don't have. We focus on the pain that we do feel. And we don't typically get better doing that. In fact, if you've ever been around someone like that, even if they've gone through, you know, real legitimate crisis, they've really suffered tragedy, if you watch them just become someone that life is all about them, it's kind of not much fun to be around those people. You feel sorry for them, and you might reach out and help them for a while, but you kind of lose uh, just the desire to even be around them. And, and, And so that's what we typically do. Typically, we say, me, me, me. Me. This is what's going on with me. But Ruth did the exact opposite. And this is such a such a huge point. Ruth said, I've lost my husband. I've lost my home. I've lost my world as I knew it. But instead of focusing on me, my problem, my loss, my sorrow, my grieving, I'm going to help somebody else. That is so huge. Why is it so good? Especially you see this a lot of times with older people if they've been married a really long time. Now, some of us are really young and we've been married a long time. But, you know, when I get old, I'm sure this will be the case that, you know, if you've been married a really long time to someone and you lose them, it's just grief beyond what we can comprehend. But what helps people in that situation a lot of times is they will start volunteering somewhere. All of a sudden, they're a pink lady at the hospital, you know. All of a sudden, they're, they're taking their eyes off of themselves, off of their pain, off of their loneliness, and they're doing something for someone else. That is such a huge factor in our recovery. It's such a huge factor in our spiritual growth for us to say, okay, I've had all this happen, but 
I want to help somebody else. I'm not going to have a, a lifelong pity party. I want to put my focus on somebody else, support someone else, serve someone else, reach out to someone else. And so that's exactly what Ruth did. She didn't talk about it. She didn't say, well, I wish there was somebody to take care of me. No, she just said, she just said, I'm going to serve my mother-in-law. Most people don't even like their mother-in-laws. More jokes have probably been made about mother-in-laws than, you know, any other relationship. But Ruth, who saw Naomi's loss, she was there for it all. She saw her loss. Part of Naomi's loss was Ruth's loss, her husband, Naomi's son. But she said, I'm going to focus on Naomi. I'm sticking with you. I'm going to be by your side. That is such a huge factor. It does us so much good when we're going through something difficult to take our eyes off of us and our circumstances and put them on someone else, helping someone else, serving someone else. Look at the rest of verse 16. Ruth says, your God will be my God. This is huge. This is huge. What was Ruth's God? Well, she was a Moabite. She lived in a pagan nation. They worshipped false gods. She was as, as opposite as you could be from uh, the Israelites, from the, the family of God. Here she would be the enemy. In fact, the Moabites were the enemy of God's people. And she says, your God will be my God. So not only did she not turn away from God because of her tragedy, she turned to God. And it wasn't her God. It wasn't a God that she was familiar with. You know, a lot of people, if they were raised in church or maybe they, they, you know, became a Christ follower at a young age and kind of drifted away at some point. If there's tragedy in their lives, all of a sudden they turn back to God. It kind of redevelops an interest in God or a hunger uh, for God. You know, okay, man, I've, I've lost everything I thought I had. I need to turn back to God. A lot of people do that. But in this case, Ruth wasn't turning back to God. She was turning to God uh, for the first time. She was turning to God despite having watched her father-in-law die, her brother-in-law die, and her husband die. So Ruth did two things that helped her get better instead of bitter. She, she turned her focus on someone else and serving them, and she turned to God. And sought to serve him. Your God will be my God. I don't know when Ruth was saved. I don't know if it was at that moment that Ruth said, I'm going to follow your God. I'm going to follow the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm going to follow what you have taught me as the true and living God. I don't know if that was the moment that she put her faith in God. Maybe it was a growing thing as she'd seen the example of her uh, mother-in-law and, and her uh, former father-in-law had passed away. Maybe it was the example of her husband who passed away. We, we don't know exactly what influence there was. My guess is, though, she's wanting to stay with Naomi and she's wanting to follow Naomi's God. So it had to be Naomi's life, I would think. It had to be her example. It had to be her living witness that even though she felt like, you know, God had, had punished her, there was still something about her relationship with God that made Ruth want a relationship with that God. See, we don't know when we're going through a crisis. We don't know who's watching. 
We don't know how people are watching us and how watching us make it through is going to make a huge difference. It's fascinating sometimes when people say, man, you know, there was such turmoil going on, but that guy over there had a peace. That lady, she, there was some peace about her that even though terrible things were happening, she was the one that just didn't seem to, it didn't seem to rock her world. And, and, and they look and they say, what's the source of that peace? Well, I, I believe in the Prince of Peace. I'm a, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. So when we're going through a crisis, it's an incredible opportunity for God to use us to reach other people. Because they look and they say, that person's got something I need. That person's got something I want. If they're able to make it through this terrible, terrible thing that's happening to them, then I want to be able to make it through. I want the strength that they have. I want the kind of faith that they have. So we don't know exactly if that was the moment or if it was a growing thing. We don't know exactly at what point Ruth became a a believer in God and a follower of God. But she made that declaration, the most important declaration that we can ever make. My God. Your God is going to be my God. Look at verse 17. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. Can you imagine such loyalty? I mean, she's just saying, I'm in it with you. This is it. You lost your husband. I lost my husband. He was your son. He was my husband. I'm I'm sticking with you. I'm going to be by your side. I'm going to take care of you. We're going to work together. We're going to be together. And and I don't want anything to ever separate us. I'm going to become a part of your people. There's people I don't know anything about. I've never been to Bethlehem. I've never been in a Christian nation. I don't know what that's going to be like. But hey, I'm in. I'm going to follow you and I'm going to stick with you and be with you. What a great example of loyalty that Ruth showed. So in the midst of her own crisis, her own tragedy, her own sorrow, instead of getting bitter, Ruth got better. So Ruth and and Naomi are traveling back to Bethlehem. And we don't know, like I said last week, we don't know how long Naomi was gone. We know it was over 10 years, but it could have been 20, 30, 40. We, We don't know how long she was gone. But she gets back to Bethlehem. And who knows what she was expecting to find. I mean, we learned last week the ladies came out and greeted her. And she goes, oh, don't even call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara because I'm just filled with sorrow. You know, but they recognized her. She still knew some people there, still had some friends there. I'm guessing her house was probably in foreclosure. Uh, you know, nobody had been making the mortgage payments through that time. But fortunately, and, and it's not right here in the text. It's some of the commentaries uh, tell us that, that fortunately... Uh, Ruth and Naomi, two widows trying to start over, trying to start from scratch. And when they got back to Bethlehem, uh, it, we find out they did have health care. They, they were two of the six people that were able to get on to uh, JerusalemHealthCare.gov, and they were able to get health care, and so that was on their side. But uh, food stamp benefits were being reduced, so here's these two widows. What are we going to do? How are we going to make a living? What are we going to eat? And so Ruth asks Naomi, she said, it's, it's time for the harvest. Barley is ready to be harvested. How about if I go out into the fields and glean? 
and glean, we've talked about this recently, gleaning is where you would go into the fields behind the harvesters. After they were done, you'd go behind them. So they harvested everything they wanted, and, and you could go through the fields. If you had permission, you could go through the fields and pick up anything that was left over. Uh, Valerie's parents have been up in West Virginia, and then they stopped in North Carolina on the way back home this week to see our, our daughter Jennifer and her family. And, and Valerie's dad said, yeah, they, they were harvesting peanuts across the street. We went over and got one, you know. And they come through, and they chop them all down. They leave them laying there for a few days, and then some other machine comes and gets them and, and harvests them. But, you know, after that's done, you can go. I, I, I know people here that have gone to, you know, they know somebody that owns a watermelon farm. And they'll say, hey, they're done. Anybody that wants watermelon, go over, because there's still a bunch of them left on the ground. You can go get them. Otherwise, they're just going to rot. And so gleaners weren't just somebody saying, hey, you want to go get a fresh watermelon. It's like, we're not going to eat if we don't do that. That's, not, that's our only chance for food. So Ruth asks Naomi, can I, can I go do that? I, you know, lots of barley fields here. The harvest is ready. Can I go and glean? And Ruth says, yeah, go, go and do that. So, uh, or I mean, Naomi says, sure, go and do that. So chapter 2, uh, verse 3. Ruth went out to gather grain behind the harvesters. And and as it happened, she found herself working in a field that belonged to Boaz, the relative of her father-in-law, Elimelech. So this this was Naomi's husband who passed away. Uh, His relative, Boaz, happened to own the farm, happened to own those particular fields uh, where Ruth has gone to glean. Verse 4, while she was there, Boaz arrived from Bethlehem and greeted the harvesters. The Lord be with you, he said. The Lord bless you, the harvesters replied. You know, years ago, I worked in a retail store. I've talked about it before. Dave was my boss down at Builder Square down in Palm Bay. And Dave was a great boss. Bill Beck, who was the uh, general manager, I think, at the time, was great boss, great, great guys. But here's what I would see. When the district guys would come in, I mean, Dave doesn't look easily intimidated, right? Dave's this good guy. He's the hardest working guy I've ever known. He's like, if you wanted to watch somebody perfect work ethic, that's what I saw uh, working for Dave there. But district managers would come in, and all of a sudden this group of good guys, good men, qualified men, successful men doing a great job managing this huge store, you, you literally would have thought, you literally would have thought the devil himself was coming to inspect the store. And I know you probably said, he was. <laughs> and I always believed that until my son became a, a district manager, and I know he's not the devil. So I, you know, I, I know that's a good thing now, but, but there, there was this idea that when the big boss came, Everybody's afraid, right? When the big boss, I love watching Undercover Boss on TV, but when they find out it was the big boss, even if they were good to him and did a good job, they find out that the big boss was here. Oh my gosh, I can't believe you own the company and you were here in my store. Oh gosh, I hope I'm not fired. And a lot of times on Undercover Boss, the first thing they'll say is, am I fired? You know, and oftentimes it's the really good people that ask that question. The scum people that should have been chopped immediately are like, what? You didn't agree with me cussing out the customers? I just don't get it. You know, but, but here's the idea. The big boss comes in, and it usually strikes fear into the hearts of corporate employees, of retail employees, anywhere. The big boss comes in, everybody freaks out. But look at this story of Boaz. 
Boaz arrives, CEO of Bethlehem Barley Incorporated, Boaz arrives and says to the workers, not the managers, not the supervisors, the harvesters, says to them, the Lord be with you. And they say, the Lord bless you. Too. What does that tell us about Boaz? What kind of boss was Boaz? He was a godly guy. What a godly man that he walks up and doesn't say, you guys aren't working hard enough. How much production do we have? Have we met our numbers? You're not going over on payroll, are you? No, he didn't do any of that stuff. He walks in and says, the Lord bless you guys. And I don't think they were just trying to impress him when they said, the Lord bless you too. He wanted the Lord to bless the people that worked for him. They wanted the Lord to bless their boss. What kind of a guy is that? What a godly example of a boss. What kind of faith is that? That he's not afraid to share his faith. He walks in and and proclaims his faith and asks the blessings of God to be on the people working for him. Then in verse 5, Boaz asks his foreman, who's that young woman over there? Who does she belong to? And the foreman replied, she's the young woman from Moab who came back with Naomi. She asked me this morning if she could gather grain behind the harvesters. She's been hard at work ever since, except for a few minutes rest in the shelter. What does this tell us about the character of Boaz? Well, he he obviously knew his workers. We don't know how many. You know, we always think that biblical, you hear about things in biblical proportions. But the truth is, we think biblical times were very, very small. We think, oh, there was these few people and there was the, you know. No, a lot of, lot of people on earth back then. And so this could have been huge. He could have had hundreds. He could have had thousands of workers. We don't know. But he knew who his workers were. He recognized them. He had that kind of a relationship that he actually knew them. If you've ever worked for a big company, you might have said, yeah, the boss, can't, he didn't even know my name. He didn't even know who I was. Well, Boaz walked in and goes, who's that? Probably a hot day. He's outside. Everybody's working. Who's that? I don't recognize her. Who is she? And she probably didn't look like the typical farm worker. She probably didn't look like a a migrant worker, you know, just traveling, trying to survive. She probably didn't look like that. She probably looked a little out of place, perhaps. But he instantly knew that somebody new is here and... Somebody new, especially a woman, especially a young woman, especially a young pretty woman, she needs to be protected. She, she, she could get in a lot of trouble here. There's a lot of guys that would try to take advantage of her. And, and, and so look what he did, verse 8. Boaz went over to Ruth, and he said, listen, my daughter. Stay right here with us when you gather grain. Don't go to any other field. Stay right behind the young women working in my field. In verse 9, see which part of the field they're harvesting and then follow them. I've warned the young men not to treat you roughly. When you're thirsty, help yourself to the water they've drawn from the well. Ruth fell at his feet and thanked him warmly. What have I done to deserve such kindness, she asked. I'm only a foreigner. So he sees this woman. He knows she's from out of town, knows that she's somebody new, asks who she is, and then finds out she's a Moabite. He's a man of faith. 
Here's a Moabite. He's a man of faith. Here's a pagan. He's a man in a godly country. She's from a pagan country. But he treated her well. And that wasn't normal. You know, recently when we talked about prejudice and favoritism, we, we, we saw how God would tell his people, look, don't, you know what it's like to be foreigners. Don't treat people like that. Don't treat people like you've been treated when you were in a foreign land, when you were the outsider. Don't treat people like that, God said. And so Boaz, Boaz was being a, a godly example here. He didn't say, she's from Moab, get her out of here. I wouldn't let her pick up one bit of barley. I wouldn't let her do it. No. He cared about her regardless of her past, regardless of where she was from. And then he finds out she's the one that came back with Naomi. She's the one that was married to my relative's son. And so he just, again, sets a great example of being a godly man. In verse 11, he goes, yes, I know. I know. She goes, why are you treating me nice? Why are you? I'm, I'm a foreigner. Why, why are you treating me? But, but notice this. Yes, I know, Boaz replied. In other words, I know who you are. I know where you're from. But I also know about everything you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. I have heard how you left your father and your mother and your own land to live here among complete strangers. You see what a reputation does, what a good reputation does? We might not be doing it for anybody to pay attention. We hopefully are doing it for God. But you see what a good reputation does? Here's this pagan woman from a pagan country, but she was loyal. She was loyal to her husband's family, loyal to her mother-in-law. And Boaz goes, I've heard all about it. You know, we hear things like that. I've heard all about it. And it's easy for us to forget, you know, he didn't read it on Facebook. He didn't get it in an email. He didn't, you know, communication was difficult in those days. Very difficult. But he'd already heard about her. He'd already heard how good she was, how she gave up everything, her own land, her father, her mother, everything to come and support Naomi. And notice that he says to live here among complete strangers. So he knew how difficult that was. And how different that was. And then see what he says to her in verse 12. May the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge, reward you fully for what you've done. Again, he's just speaking blessings. He's recognizing what she's done. And, and, and he's like, may God, may my God, may the God of Israel, may the true and living God give you refuge and reward. So Ruth turned away from false gods. She turned to the true God. She left the comfort of home and, and family and her and nation that she was raised in to go serve someone else in another nation. And now God is blessing her through a godly man named Boaz. We have such tremendous opportunity and such tremendous responsibility. We have such an opportunity to be a blessing to people. It was just another day in Boaz's work life. But all of a sudden, he's given this opportunity to be a blessing, to be used by God. And that's what he did as he blessed Ruth. So now let me set up this next part. She keeps working. 
Boaz takes good care of her. He says, hey, when you're hungry, come over and eat with us. You don't have to go eat out. You're not an outsider anymore. You're an insider. Come eat with us. Come get whatever you need. I want you to come back to work. I want to make sure you're safe, you're protected. It takes really, really good care of her. And so Ruth tells Naomi about this and that it's Boaz. And, 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 and back then there was a thing called a family redeemer. And I encourage you to read. This afternoon you could read all four chapters of Ruth in literally 30 minutes probably, all four chapters, and really get this, this whole story. But the family redeemer was kind of a process that, that if, if you had been in debt and you were sold into slavery, a, a close relative could be your family. Somebody in your family could be your redeemer. They could come pay off the debt, have you come work for them, but they're going to treat you good. They're not going to treat you like a slave. And, and there was lots of different uh, angles on this to where someone could say, your family, let me come help you. Let me, let me make sure you're taken care of. It was, it was a very honorable way for family to be taken care of, even extended family. And so... Uh, Ruth, or Naomi tells Ruth, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to Boaz, and, and as you read it this afternoon, you can read the exact process, kind of how it all unfolded. And, and, and essentially, I want you to ask him to be a family redeemer. I want you to ask him to be the one that kind of oversees us and, and makes sure that we're provided for and taken care of. And so uh, Ruth goes through this very specific process uh, and makes that presentation to Boaz, and look at what he says over in Ruth chapter 3, in verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter. The Lord bless you. Now, if you read that story this afternoon, you're going to see that she actually laid down at his feet and went through this whole, like you'd kind of think, older guy, younger woman, boy, he really had the opportunity to take advantage of her here. But he doesn't say, Lord bless you, you hot young thing from, no. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. That's how he's been treating her, as if she was his daughter, making sure she was safe, making sure she was provided for, making sure she had enough to eat. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz exclaimed. You're showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. For you have not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor. Now, don't worry about a thing, my daughter. I will do what is necessary for everyone in town. And here's her reputation coming into play again. Everyone in town knows you are a virtuous woman. So he's thinking, look, you're young. I'm guessing she's pretty. She could go get any guy she wants, and he'd be glad to take care of her. He'd be glad. No. She could go sell her body. No, not doing that. No. She's a virtuous woman. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows her reputation. Everybody knows how loyal she's been. Everybody knows that she's turned away from her gods to the true God. She's turned away from her family to serve Naomi. Turned away from her homeland to come live in Bethlehem. And now, Boaz says, while it's true that I'm one of your family redeemers, there's another man who's more closely related to you than I am. Stay here tonight. In the morning, I'll talk to him. If he's willing to redeem you very well, let him marry you. But if he's not willing, then surely as the Lord lives, I will redeem you myself. Now lie down here until the morning. And so it's showing us Boaz's character again. He could have said, yeah, I'll pay off the land. I'll pay off any debts that you've got. You know, I'll make sure you and Naomi are taken care of. Hey, if you're still interested, I'll even marry you. 
He could have said that. And the mere fact that he said, wow, bless you, my daughter. You know, he's older, she's younger. This could have been a great deal for him. Other guys probably went to websites like MoabiteBrides.com and tried to get these mail-order brides to come over, those wild women of Moab to come over and be their bride. Boaz didn't care anything about any of that. He wanted to do what was right. He wanted to do what was honorable. And so he went through the process of then checking with the man that, that was rightfully in line to take both this responsibility, but also the blessing of getting to marry Ruth. He went through the process. He did what was right. And the family redeemer who was closest in line said, thanks, but it's just not going to work out for me. And so let's jump into just the end of our story here. Ruth chapter 4, verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth into his home, and she became his wife. When he slept with her, the Lord enabled her to become pregnant, and she gave birth to a son. Now notice the reaction of the the women in Bethlehem, verse 14. Then the women of the town said to Naomi, Praise the Lord who has now provided a redeemer for your family, and may this child be famous in Israel. May he restore your youth and take care of you in your old age. For he is the son of your daughter-in-law who loves you and has been better to you than seven sons. Naomi took the baby, cuddled him to her breast, and she cared for him as if she were her own. And the neighbor women said, now at last Naomi has a son again. And they named him Obed. He became the father of Jesse and the grandfather of David. Let me ask you a question. What would have happened to Naomi if she'd lost her faith and turned away from God? She blamed God, but she didn't lose her faith. She thought God was mad at her, but she didn't turn away from God. What would have happened to Naomi? How would her story have ended if she had turned away from God and walked away from her faith? Wouldn't have ended like this, would it? Her story wasn't over. Back when everything looked hopeless, her story wasn't over over what would have happened to ruth if naomi had turned away from god would ruth have turned to god i doubt it would ruth have said i want your god oh wait a minute you don't even want your god you don't believe in him anymore okay well then i guess i'm not going to go that way either imagine how the story would have been different if naomi had turned away from god if naomi had walked away from her faith But because Naomi didn't turn away from God, despite all the tragedy in her life, because she kept her faith in God, because Ruth turned to God, took the focus off of herself so she wouldn't become bitter, but put the focus on serving her mother-in-law, they both received a fresh start. They both received a fresh start. And because of God's love and his provision, uh, Naomi ended up with a great life. She said, the Lord took it all away. I'm empty. Now it was full. Everything she could ever hope for and dream of. And because Ruth received a fresh start, because of God's love and his provision, this woman from a pagan nation who used to worship false gods, was saved, treated like a treasure by her new husband, and became the great-grandmother of King David 
and became part of the family line of Jesus himself. How cool is that? How cool is that? Ruth turned to God. She sought to honor God. And she focused on helping somebody else. So instead of being bitter, her life became better. What about you? We've got so much pain in this room. Laura, you should bring a pain chart sometime. It would be hilarious. Just pass around the pain chart. I'd say, well, let's see. Roy's not here because he's got so much pain. I got, you know, my doctor's increasing my medicine and doing any good. I, we could literally just go around. You know, Edgar needs eye surgery. Bob's going in for heart catheterization tomorrow. Larry doesn't complain, but he's had a heart attack and all kinds of other problems. We could just, we could just go around. We could go around the room. Pain would be off the chart. We'd get A plus plus. We'd all be above ten, I think. And that's just physical pain. If we passed the chart back around and said, "What about the emotional pain?" What about the heartache over spouses or kids? What about the heartache over uh, finances and so many other things? We'd be really, really high on the chart. And so every single one of us, not just with what we might be dealing with today, but things that we'll deal with in the future, every single one of us has the opportunity to say, am I going to let these circumstances, no matter how bad they are, am I going to let these circumstances make me bitter towards God, bitter towards other people, or am I going to let these circumstances make me better so that God can use me like he used Ruth? So that God can use me like he's used people all throughout the the Bible. That God could use me because of what I went through. I don't want to go through it. I don't want to go through crisis. I don't want to go through tragedy. But I have the choice to say, am I going to become bitter or better? I want to show you a video. There's no better example of this that that I can imagine. And if you've never seen uh, this young man, Nick, as a... An evangelist now. Uh, get, get ready. We should have brought tissues in. Get ready to cry. And if you have seen him, then just ask yourself the question as you watch his story. What's my excuse? Why am I letting life circumstances make me bitter instead of better? I was born in Melbourne, Australia, 1982, and my parents had no idea that I was going to be born without arms or legs. I was the only one that I ever saw without limbs. My faith in Jesus Christ was sealed after seven years of wondering why God I was born this way. Uh, He answered me very clearly through John chapter 9. And I gave my life to Jesus at 15 after reading about how he came across a man who was born blind. And I'm like, hey, hold on a second. This looks interesting. (laughs) And no one knew why he was born that way. I'm like, perfect. So I read on, and in verse 3 of the ninth chapter, Jesus said, it was done so that the works of God would be revealed through him. And I'm like, wow, God, if you had a plan for the blind man, you do have a plan for me. And that was the beginning of my personal relationship with Jesus. Youth groups were starting to call me, 
churches were starting to call me. Opportunities were opening up everywhere for me to share my testimony. I was speaking in front of 300 sophomore public high school students. Three minutes into it, half the girls were crying. One girl in the middle of the room started weeping. She put up her hand and she said, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but can I come up there and give you a hug? In front of everyone, she came and she hugged me. She cried on my shoulder and was spinning my ear. No one's ever told me that they love me. No one's ever told me that I'm beautiful the way that I am. I couldn't believe it. It changed my life. At that moment, I knew God was ministering to her through me. It's not by my speech or my power. It was God. And my heart was ignited with a passion. And it was an awesome day to see one soul transformed forever. That was when I knew I was called to be a worldwide man. You must know what God can do with your broken pieces until you give God your broken pieces. across 44 countries on six continents, from university campuses, 40,000 students in China, to India, where we're talking to set slaves, to crowds in the jungle of India, 110,000 people, down to Indonesia and all of Southeast Asia, to speaking at congresses of nations like Colombia and Costa Rica, where you see the leaders of that nation commit that country to the Lord Jesus. To Korea and speaking to the next generation about depression and suicide, and to Eastern Europe, where we did Serbia, Slovenia, and Croatia. And then doors in the Middle East, the message of hope was spread throughout the whole Arab world. That is God. And we know we've just begun. If anybody had a reason to be bitter, young boy, born with no arms or legs. And Nick did in fact try to kill himself as a child, tried to commit suicide. I think he was eight years old when he just thought, I don't want to live. Kids bullied him. They were mean to him. I don't want to live. He could have become a miserable, bitter person and spent the rest of his life being devoured by that bitterness. But because God transformed him, he was able to have a better life to make more difference in more people's lives than we, we can even imagine. And I love what he said. It's that, it's that he was this way so that the works of God could be manifested, could be shown, could be revealed through his life. If he was a normal kid with normal body, with little arms and legs, we probably never would have heard of him. Guys, we go through tragedies. Life is hard. We go through crisis. And we have the opportunity to become bitter, and to turn away from God, or to say, God, will you help me get better through this?
that this would mold me and shape me and make me into the, the teenager, the boy, the girl, the man, or the woman that you want me to be. God, would somehow, through my crisis, through this tragedy, somehow, God, would you use this that you would be revealed, that your purposes, that your ways would be revealed through me so that other people's lives might be changed. I want us to pray right now.